if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Midweek, I learned a brand spanking new theological term, which is kind of rare uh, for me, but it's a cool one. It is isogetical narcissism. Um, it's nice, big, it's clumsy to roll off the tongue, so it's actually a great theological term. Isogetical narcissism. Uh, what does eisegetical narcissism mean? Well, eisegesis is when you read into God's word things that aren't there, or you you use the biblical text kind of as a springboard to talk about what you want to talk about. It's not really talking about the word. Narcissism is when literally the entire world is about you. And you cannot see beyond you because you are just so glorious. You are taken up with you. You are your own biggest critic, and you think you're great. So if you put the two terms together and you have eisegetical narcissism, basically you're committing eisegesis because you're a narcissist. You read into the text yourself. It's all about you. And that's kind of why you read the scripture, because it's all about you, and God talks about you, and he talks about you as being really, really great, and of course he does, because God knows what he's talking about, and you are really great, and how can you miss it in the text? A good example that's usually cited is the debate over the story about David and Goliath. Uh, if you are reformed, you are 90% likely to say the, the story of David and Goliath is not about you in any way. Now, the, the grand majority of the church preaches it that 
the story of David and Goliath is all about you. That you are David and you have Goliath you've got to slay and this story is about you and it's possible for you to slay him. And the isogenical way of dealing with this, the, the narcissistic way, is the kind of positive thinking, feel-good approach to religion where the minister gets up and says, Beloved, you don't know the strength you actually possess. David can slay Goliath, and you are David. You have it within you to slay your giants, and I am here to tell you that you can do this because, of course, you can. We are going to be absolutely positive thinking here. Um, you can take down your Goliaths because you are you. You got this. You just need to hear somebody tell you that. Isn't that great? Uh, that's one way of dealing with it isogenically, narcissistically. Uh, there's even more crasser ways of dealing with it. The, the classic hellfire and brimstone isogenical narcissist approach would be there are Goliaths in your life and you could rise up and slay those Goliaths if you just would. But the problem is you are too lazy and too self-centered to actually be David, but you could do it. You could rise up, you could be David, you could take down the Goliath, but you don't want to do it because quite frankly, you need preaching at, but your self-will as such is if you just get up and pull yourself up by bootstraps, you could kill Goliath. And that's what God wants to see. God wants to see you kill the Goliaths in your life, and he is waiting for you to do it. But you you just, you need to work on your will, and if your will finally becomes powerful enough, you'll get up and you'll kill those Goliaths. Both of those approaches are isogenical narcissism. But there is, to the story of David, uh, kind of an elephant in the room when you're addressing this, we Reformed Christians want to make the story of David and Goliath a type and a shadow, which it is. Uh, David is God's called king, eventually. He's already been declared that he will be. Um, David represents Christ. Goliath represents the armies of hell and darkness. The armies of hell and darkness want to destroy God's people, but God raises up a Messiah because the king of Israel is anointed. That's what the term Messiah means. He raises up David to slay Goliath, to deliver God's people. It is a type and a shadow of Jesus Christ who will be the greater David who will deliver us from hell and damnation. That's actually a solid biblical truth, and that is... One of the major reasons that we have this story is because it is a type and a shadow. But David is just this guy, you know. I mean, I had to, I'm sorry. Um, David is a human being, and David does kill a physical giant. And we're told the whole story, and... David, though he is a type of our Lord, and our Lord comes from him, David 
is not a perfect example of Jesus Christ. In fact, if we study his entire life, we're going to hit all kinds of really dark, evil things that happen. And we're going to cry out, oh, Lord, is this the best king you can give us? Is this your great deliverer? We need something else. And God goes, there you go. That's part of this. That's why I'm showing you this. David is a man, and you are a man. If you're a woman, you're a man in the collective sense. You are a human being, and David does do right in this passage. Um, Isn't there something in the passage applicable to who we are? Aren't we in the story to some degree somewhere? Well, generally, in, in reform preaching of it, the answer is no. Shut up. You're not even part of it at all. But the guy who used the phrase eisegetical narcissism pointed out the story is about God working through a chosen agent, an agent who would not have defeated Goliath if God hadn't been at work. As my unbelieving father once pointed out, uh, totally unbelieving guy, um, what do you get if you tell the story of David and Goliath, but David doesn't have divinely given faith? What do you get? You get a broken slingshot is what you get, because Goliath eats him. Uh, God is at work in the events, And God gets glory because God raises up a man to work through, and it's an act of God, but it's through his people, and there is a certain emulation we are called there to. When God calls us to service, the power is God, the glory is God, the gifts are God, but it's about God. It really is about God. And when you are used by God to do significant and good and godly things, you need to say with Psalm 115, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but your holy glory. But God does work through people, and God works on people. And God gave David the gifts and graces and the drive to do what happened in the story. And God still does that. Thanks be to God. Now, the reason why I'm bringing all of this up as effectively an introduction is because in the 10 verses we just read, there is much more than what I'm going to actually take on. But the major theme running through 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 through 10, is the apostle begins to show his readers who are you. And if you, if you paint with a very broad brush, there are four things the apostle says in this set of verses that identify you as you. Who, who are his original readers? Well, it is about his original readers. This is who they are. And if I were Robert Schuler, I would address this passage and say, the things that Peter says to you are, you really just don't know, but you are these things. God was so lucky to have you. 
God is overjoyed at the value of who you are intrinsically. You are by nature these things. You just don't know it. Your problem is ignorance, which is a statement that comes out of Hinduism. Uh, you just need to realize that you are these things. And Peter is telling them, this is who you are. If I were John Wesley, I'd go the second route. Peter says this is who his readers are, but that's because they get their butt in gear and they do that. They are, are, are doing the walk. Of course they are. There's nothing in this book that suggests that they're not, which is false. Um, get off your butt and be all these things, because this is what God tells you you have to do. What's wrong with you? Both of those approaches would be eisegetical narcissism. It would make the text all about us. But the text is about who they are, and by extension, who we are. They are these four things, and we are these four things, not because we are intrinsically these things. We are not. Without the grace of God, all four of these things that Peter describes us as, there's not a stitch of it in us. And there is no pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps and saying, I'm going to be these things. It's not there without the grace of God. It's not there without the Spirit, which Peter has been talking about again and again and again, all the way through chapter 1. But it is in his original hearers because the Spirit is in them. Because they have had the blood of Christ applied to them, and right at the end of chapter 1, it's because they are born again by an imperishable seed. That seed is the word of God. They have been given rebirth by God to be in God's family. It's not about them. It's not their strength, not their power, not their will. It's God working through men, but God has. And because God has brought about this conversion, now this is who Peter's original audience is. And by extension, it is who we are. The first self-identity can be found in verse 1 through 3. He tells them to lay aside various sinful things and they are the kind of things you would expect. They've, they've come to the Lord. They've taken on the Lord's family identity. They're supposed to lay aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, all evil speaking. Uh, rather straightforward. God's uh, family appearance doesn't have that. And since they have been born again by the word of God, really they should lay it aside because it's unbecoming of the Christian to be like that because they're born again. But he turns to the concept of being born again. And what do you get when you're born again? What is the product of a new birth? Well, the product's a baby. Uh, all you mothers who have given biological birth I assume you're fairly grateful that people are not born at 23. That would be bad. Well, Peter says, you've been born again by, by God's divine seed. You have his nature. 
you are now babes in Christ, and babies need milk. You've been born again by God's hand. You're not born fully mature. You're not born able to quote the Nicene Creed. You're not born knowing the entire contents of the Bible. Far from it, you are born a baby. And your ability is not real high in anything. You're a babe in Christ, and you need milk. And you should take milk. What is the milk that Peter says the newborn Christian needs? Well, he puts it very straightforwardly. In chapter 1, the word of God conveys the divine nature to you as God works through it. At the beginning of chapter 2, the word of God is the milk. What is the milk that a baby Christian needs? He needs the word of God. He does not need human philosophy. He does not need systematic theology. What he needs is he needs the very word of God. It will be like milk for a baby. I have a number of men who I am very pleased to say the Lord has been my mentor in ministry, a handful of men, and I'm still very grateful to all of them. God brought them into my life, and they are high-quality people. And probably the highest of them, the, the best of them, is a man by the name of G.I. Williamson, who uh, is kind of the, the living authority on the Reformed Confessions and Creeds. He's approaching 100, but if you read a book on the Confessions and Creeds, probably G.I. wrote it. And G.I. was a marvelous mentor to me, a fantastic Christian pastor. You can't ask for a better guy. But in his book on the Heidelberg Catechism, which I highly recommend to you, he makes the statement that now you need to understand what new Christians need is not the Bible. They need the catechism. Because the catechism is systematic and will show them how to think when they come to the Bible. It will bring out of the surface of the words the fact that there is a system being taught here. It is not just kind of a Dear Abby grab bag of ideas. God has a central message. So by the time you can begin to disciple your, your children, you need to teach them the catechism, and you should go from the catechism to the Bible. The Bible will come later. I love G.I. to death. He is absolutely wrong. The Apostle Peter says the milk for a new Christian is the word of God itself. There is a place for pointing out systematics. There really is. In fact, this sermon is one of those things. But the pure milk, which Peter promises us you will grow thereby, the pure milk is the word of God itself. The creator of the universe, the God who put every atom into movement, the God who still upholds everything in the world, deigned to write a book. And it's the only book he wrote. 
And if God went out of his way to you know, write a few things down, how important is that? Peter says it's as, as important as milk to a baby. This is how the newborn Christian will grow, get him into the word, get him thinking about the word, talk to him about the word. Uh, when they get tired of the word, push them back into the word because the word is the milk for the Christian who is just born and there is nothing that substitutes for it whatsoever. That is where we all start in the Christian walk. And that is where the Christian walk begins with its health. You feed babies milk. But that does suggest that there is meat to be had. Uh, eventually, babies stop being babies. At least they're supposed to. Where is the meat? Well, we have to move to 1 Corinthians if we are going to look and find the answer to that. But in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul addresses them, and he begins by saying, now you stay babies too long. Is there, is there any shame in being a baby? You know, Sophia was just born. Should I stand over her and say, look, what's wrong with you? You know, be adult about this. Of course not. If Sophia is still acting this way when she's seven, is there a problem? Yeah, I mean, you're supposed to grow up. You're supposed to stop being babies. Well, Paul writes to the church at Corinth, and he says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal. Now, they're carnal not because they've been babes in Christ, they're carnal because they stayed babes in Christ. You, you know what childishness is, and you know it's bad. Well, that's where they're at. I could refer to you as carnal, as ba to babes in Christ. I fed you milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it. And even now you are still not able, for you are, for are, for you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For what, for when one says, I'm a Paul, and another, I'm an apostle, Apollos, are you not carnal? So Paul says, I had to feed you with milk, even though you're supposed to be more adult about this. What is the meat they should have been eating? Well, that's a chapter back. He's already referenced it. He says, however... We speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would, have not, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory." So Paul says, now we have a mature message. We, who is we? Well, it's the apostles. We have a mature message. When you move away from milk, when you get to the point where you should be moving away from milk, 
you don't move away from the word of God. Now you have the meat, which is in the word of God, because the apostles who are used by God to write the word of God also write the meat just like they write the milk. And so when you look to what God has said in scripture about where we find our nourishment, the most primary place of our nourishment is the word of God. Now there is a place for systematics, a place for the catechism. Uh, there's a place for Christian philosophy, but it's definitely when you get past the milk and it does not replace the meat, which is also the word of God. Now you may be asking if there are things that are milk in the word of God, and it's what babies should crave. Has God given us a statement of what that is? Well, the answer is, yeah, actually. In the book of Hebrews, the writer to Hebrews takes up our same theme, and he says, therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works, resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment, uh, of laying on of hands, of, of uh, washings, which for some reason are, are here, but they are in the passage. Uh, this we will do if God permits. So uh, what are the basic principles? Well, they tend to be the things that Christian denominations fight over. Uh, baptisms, laying on of hands, how does, how does the resurrection work, uh, repentance from dead works to new life. Um, the apostles say these are, those are actually things that are basic. They're simple. Therefore, babes in Christ. And uh, you should nurture yourself on these basic truths at the beginning and grow till you can eat the meat. And the meat is the word of God as well. They are becoming our second self-identity. They are becoming a spiritual house. That is in verse 4 and 5. Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Who are you now that God has given you a new birth? Well, you're being assembled to be part of a spiritual temple. Uh, the temple is built out of blocks, and each one of us is a block that the temple is being built out of. When Jesus Christ was on trial, the temple of God was under major renovation. The temple that stood in Christ's time was the temple of Zerubbabel, but it wasn't. If you know anything about Zerubbabel's temple, it's the second temple. It's rebuilt after the Babylonians destroy Solomon's temple. And when the temple is built, uh, people who had been alive in Solomon's temple because it was so small and insignificant compared to Solomon's temple. 
Well, Herod the Great, when he got into power, said, yep, they're right. That's absolutely a small temple. I want something of grandeur and power. So he began to renovate Zerubbabel's temple to the point where there was literally nothing left of Zerubbabel's temple. It was, in fact, a totally different structure. But that took 42 years, and all during those 42 years, God's people were still worshiping in the temple as it was under renovation. So for 42 years, you would go to worship God at the Feast of Weeks or that sort of thing, and all around you there would be construction work being done, but it was a functional temple. God's worship was taking place. You just had to watch for the falling debris and that sort of thing, but it was a working temple. Well, Peter says the situation with you right now is exactly the same. God has a true spiritual temple. It was never the physical sticks and bricks that made up the physical temple. The true temple of God, to which that was a type and a shadow, is the assembly of Christians together with the Holy Spirit in our hearts. We are the temple, and the temple is under construction. You have not been built into a temple. The work is not done. God is building a temple as we speak, and you are a part of it, a block of the temple. But worship is happening right now. It is not that God is waiting for the temple to be in perfect, pristine condition so worship can begin. Uh, you're being assembled into a temple, but it's like those 42 years. And God is at work building his temple, and you're the temple. Uh, that's an act of God. He takes blockheads like us and builds his temple. Um, that is amazing that God wants to have a temple in human hearts, gathered human hearts. That's the temple. You are also in that very same passage. Uh, you are the priesthood. You are the place where the priesthood works and you are the priests that are doing the work. Now, make no mistake, you are not the high priest. The apostle goes out of his way to say, you're not the foundation of the temple, and you're not the high priest. Uh, Peter works with the temple motif here, not really with the priest, but the entire book of Hebrews is about the fact that you're not the high priest. The, the temple is being built, and the chief cornerstone of that temple we read about in verse 6 through 8. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. The cornerstone is where all the weight gets placed. Why is this building standing? Well, a major reason is because the cornerstone is strong enough, tough enough, 
to hold everything up. And Peter says, you're being built as a temple to God, but make no mistake, the weight is not on you. The weight is on this stone that God has chosen. And of course, we know who that stone is. That's our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the capstone, the cornerstone of the temple, all the way to the building is leaning on Christ. He can handle it. He is the foundation. He is chosen. You can't just have any old foundation for your building. You have to have the most perfect of stones. You have to have the stone you know you can trust. Well, that stone exists. It is our Lord Jesus Christ. God has chosen him. He is the chief cornerstone. And there's a number of things that are chosen in these three verses. Um, the actual builder of the temple is chosen. We are told that God himself is deigning to build the house. Now, there are also builders mentioned, plural, but they don't like the plan the house is being built on. The builders look at the cornerstone that the real builder provides, and they say, no, we don't want that, not that stone. We want something else to be the chief cornerstone. And the real builder says, no, you're going to do it my way. He chooses the cornerstone. He puts the cornerstone in. And he also chooses to do something else. He chooses to reject the building committee that's been working on the building. Now, to you who believe he is precious, that is Jesus Christ, he is precious to you, you love him. But to those who are disobedient, not believing the word, he's become the capstone anyway. And in fact, the builders fall, they trip over the capstone, and they're crushed. They're not really the builders anymore. Why does that happen? Well, at the end of this section, Peter says they stumble over the stone because they're disobedient to the word to which they had been appointed. The word underlying appointed in the Greek is predestined. Some translations use predestined, some use appointed. They're synonyms. I don't know if it's to soften the blow or what, but Peter applies the concept of divine election and says God chose that the builders would reject the capstone and they themselves were chosen to be rejected. They were appointed from the foundation of the world to reject the capstone. If, you, if you've ever read the Lutheran Book of Concord, which, honestly, I kind of recommend, it's, it's a fairly, very solid book of theology worth reading. In the formula of Concord, you are assured that while predestination is in the Bible, it's only one-way predestination. 
what it is is if you are saved, if you are brought from death to life, that is an act of God's grace that you could never have done, and God predestined to do it, and you're predestined. But now if you reject Christ, well, that's completely your own fault, and God has nothing to do with it. It is one-way predestination. God predestines the saved, but he doesn't really have anything to do with lost people. That is totally on them. He's not done anything. And any Lutheran that you talk to will tell you there is no passage in the Bible that ever shows God rejecting people, that they're not predestined to be lost. There's no biblical statement that says that it isn't there. It except it is. Peter here clearly says the builders were predestined, they were appointed to be rejected, and it's a lot like what Solomon says in Proverbs 16, verse 4, where he writes, the Lord has made all for himself, yes, even the wicked for the day of doom. What can you get out of that other than the idea that if God is sovereign and the only people who are saved are those that he chooses, God does have something to do with what happens if you're not saved. How could it be otherwise? I mean, honestly, uh, I've read the Formula Concord again and again and again, and I've tried to think logically Okay, if no man can be saved, but God saves them, and not everybody's saved, how can you say God has nothing to do with the lost? He walked by them. He didn't choose them. So uh, he's got something to do with it, and the Lutheran passed me on the head and says, don't worry about it. It's a paradox. Um, there are paradoxes in Scripture, but this isn't one of them. That is just nonsense. Peter says the building is being built. You're the building. And God chose the capstone, and the people who were building the building before you got here said, we don't like how God's doing it, and God totally rejected them, and he appointed them to that very purpose. We are at a point where God intended us to be. God is sovereign in what happens. <clears throat> what happens in a temple is that worship is lifted to God. Sacrifices, praises, uh, incense, you know, that kind of stuff. And Peter says, not only are you the temple, but you're the priesthood that does the worship in that temple. Um, we read an interesting passage in the men's discipleship group two weeks back. Uh, it's the beginning of chapter 13 of the book of Acts, and there we read, now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Uh, these are prophets and teachers. You'll notice that that's the offices they, they, they hold. They are not priests by office. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. 
So they were, quote, ministering to the Lord and their, their prophets and teachers and such. What kind of ministry do you offer to the Lord? What is the term mean? Well, we looked it up, and this is the term that Luke uses there. Uh, Letergeo. Does that sound anything like anything you've heard before? Letergeo. We use a term every now and then in English called liturgy. It is the praises, the prayers, the, the offerings to God all woven together. That's what the liturgy is. Well, Letergeo is literally the service performed by priests and Levites in the temple. In other words, if you look at the Greek Old Testament and you were to go to, say, Leviticus, what the Levitical priesthood was doing was called Letergeo, and they were offering sacrifices, prayers, they were burning incense. Um, the term is used of Christians in the church in Antioch who are not uh, by title priests, but they're doing priestly things. Now, they're not actually sacrificing bulls and goats. They're praying. They are giving thanks in prayer. They are being praising of God. But Luke calls that the Christian liturgy, the liturgy, that is the priesthood at work even though none of them are called priests. Because every Christian who has been given born-again status by God has been born into a priesthood. In the priesthood of the law, in the priesthood of the covenant of works, you had one tribe that was set apart to do the priest stuff, and no other people of the people of God could do that. It was assigned to the family of Aaron, uh, the tribe he was from, the tribe of Levi helped his family. But the priesthood was reserved from most people. In fact, the Levites surrounded the temple and made sure you didn't get in the temple except on the very rare occasions you were allowed to come in. Uh, they'd kill you if you transgress that because the priesthood was withheld from most of God's people. But in Jesus Christ, the floodgates of God's grace are now open to the point where he has made us a kingdom of priests to serve him. You, if you are born again, are a spiritual priest. God has opened wide uh, entry into his presence. He allows you to bring the offering of praise and thanksgiving anytime you want into his very presence. The Lord Jesus Christ has torn away the veil and any priest can walk in and any born again person is a priest. Peter points to you and says, Jesus Christ has purchased for you access into the very presence of God. 
those in Moses's priesthood, in Aaron's priesthood, would be utterly shocked at that. Fire will come out from the Holy of Holies and burn you up if you transgress the sanctity of the temple in any way in Aaron's priesthood. Um, you transgress your station and you end up with leprosy for the rest of your life because God has closed off his presence but to a very few and you're probably not it. But beloved, God has opened himself to you. If you are ever swallowed by a very large fish, you will not have to, in chapter two of your book, try to figure out while you're in the fish, which way is Jerusalem, because you have to pray to the physical temple. That's actually part of chapter two of Jonah, by the way. Jonah prays towards Jerusalem while in the fish. Have you ever wondered how he was trying to figure out which way is Jerusalem in a fish? I mean, honestly, that's going to be tough. But you don't have to do that. The heaven of heavens is open to you. You are the temple. You are the priesthood itself. Those two things were distinct in the Old Testament. The priesthood, the, 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 the priests. But God has woven them all together. You are the priesthood. You are the temple. God dwells in you. And you can worship him aright and safely at any moment, at any place, in any time. And then lastly, in verse 9 through 10, you are the Israel of God. God made a number of promises to Israel. He promised them that they would be uh, a royal priesthood to the nations. The nations would look to them to understand who God was. They would be chosen, a chosen separate people, uh, his own special people, the apple in his eye, and that sort of thing. Um, they would be able to proclaim the praises of God in the midst of darkness. Uh, you go across to the Hebrew Bible and you find all these promises directly to Israel. Well, Peter ends this section of our self-identity and says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, every last one of those phrases is literally a quote from the Old Testament talking about Israel. And Peter says, who is the Israel of God to whom these promises belong? Is it those who are physically born of Abraham's descent? Is being born into the right physical family what makes you Israel and therefore you own these promises? No, you who are born again by the word of God, all the promises of Israel belong to you because you are Israel. And at one point you were not Israel. Verse 10 says, who, was, who once were not a people, but now are the people of God. So there was a time when you weren't Israel, but now you are, who had not obtained mercy, but have now obtained mercy. The people to whom uh, Peter was writing 
are clearly Gentiles. They were not born into Jewish families. They were not born in the covenant. Uh, Peter tells them in chapter 1, now God has redeemed you from the empty way of life of your forefathers. Peter would not have said that to people who were born visibly into the covenant of God, who had the gospel preached to them day in and day out through the administrations of the law and that sort of thing. Uh, he's talking to Gentiles who are not attached to the physical Israel in any way, and he says, you are the true Israel. I had a man who is racially, I guess, uh, Jewish, take me to task this week saying, you Reformed Christians believe you have replaced Israel. Well, you have not replaced us. Well, no, we didn't replace you. We are you. The kingdom of God has always been about God being king, right? I mean, it's kind of in the name. Well, who is the divine king who is king of Israel? Is Jesus Christ, and he was promised from the very fall of man all the way through all the Hebrew scriptures. He is the branch, the eternal son of David, the king of kings. To him the kingdom belongs, and all of his promises you see, I'm you, but you're not you. You have rejected the king of the kingdom. Do you get to stay as a citizen of the kingdom if you will not have its king? Well, the scripture clearly says no. From chapter 9 to chapter 11 of Romans, that's really what Paul is talking about in that section. Uh, the true Israel of God has the true David as its king, and if you reject the king, you've been cut off. You are a part of it, but you're not part of it anymore. And those who accept the king, they have been, quote, grafted in. Go look at the language, and you'll see I'm quoting it. The Christian church is the Israel of God because the Israel of God has always been about Jesus the Christ. And Paul ends his statement of our identity saying, Every promise God has ever given to his chosen people, that's to you because of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the kingdom. When Jesus walks among people, what does he tell them? He tells them, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, how can the kingdom of heaven be at hand? Well, it's because the king is right here. Wherever the king is, there's the kingdom. And Peter says, born again, you are the kingdom of God. You are the priesthood. You are the chosen nation. You are the ones to show the praise of God. Even in the darkness, this is you. It's not you because you're that intrinsically. It's not you because you pull yourself up by your bootstraps. All of that would be eisegetical narcissism. It's you because of what God has done in Jesus Christ. But it really, really is you. Thanks be to God.